just an excellent video, that is. It really uh, illustrates well what I'm going to speak on today. So well done, Ello. That's uh, ingenious there, ingenious. My name's Sai. Hope you're well. It's my joy to speak to you this morning and bring God's word to you as we continue looking at living holy lives in a sin-infested world. It's good news, isn't it, that if you look at the local stats that the infection rates are so low at the moment, and uh, we pray that that continues. But today I'm going to continue going through Corinthians, looking at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20, sorry, verse 1 to 24, as I look at glorifying God in a sexually immoral culture. Sorry, kids, we're uh, uh, still on that because the passages are still on that for the time being. But we'll move on from that very shortly. Don't, don't worry. Now, you might remember that last time I spoke, I summed up the uh, message with how we can, um, how we're called to, to be your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. So glorify God in your body. Your body is important. It's a temple of God. No higher purpose can be given to it than it's already been assigned. And Paul makes it clear that how we're to find our identity, not in our sexuality or in anything natural, but in the Lord. Our identity should be found in Christ. And then Paul looks about how we're not to sin with our body, or in the case of sex outside of biblical marriage, against your own body. And then he moves on to address how within the church God intends sexual relations to be amongst his chosen people. You see, sin not only separates us from God, but it warps our way of thinking. It corrupts the way we think. We don't see things the right way round anymore. They're upside down. And when Jesus went to the cross, when he died there for your sin and my sin so that we could be forgiven if we come to him in faith, he was raised three days later as a sign that God had accepted his sacrifice and also uh, that we who put our faith in him will also rise again when he returns Jesus is the only way to get right with God. He is the one who can give you life and life eternal. And when you come to him, he gives sin in your, your walked way of thinking and sin. He gives it the death blow so that you no longer or you begin, it begins to die within you. And he puts his spirit within you so that you can start thinking and living for God. He changes your way of thinking to the right way up. Now, some of you would have noticed this sign was upside down. And uh, Jesus comes along. It was an illustration, you see. And he puts things the right way up in your life. If I can get it to stick this time. There we go. It's a bit like this. I'm going to need Josiah for this uh, example. Mark got to do it last time. But if you want to come up here, Josiah, actually, you can come up on the, on the stage. It doesn't matter if you hurt yourself. You're my son. That's, that's all right. <laughs> it does matter, obviously. Right, so Josiah, I want you to walk on your hands for a bit, but I'll hold your legs. Don't worry. So go down on your hands. We'll bury you. Walk on your hands for a bit. Right, do you want to just walk around the stage for a bit? There you go. Let's not, let's not knock over Nan's stuff. Oh, you're going around here. 
You can go off the stage if you want. Look at that. Look, he's doing really well. Go back on the stage then as well. Up there. Up towards the microphone over here. Over that way. Towards Mark and Nan. There you go. All right. Well done, Josiah. Let's give him a clap, shall we? What was that like? Was that easy? No. No? No. And how's your head feel now at the moment? bit full of blood. That's right. Okay, thank you. Take a seat. You see, when Christ turns your life around the right way up, as it should be, actually, whilst it, that is the way we're called to live, the way that our bodies have been made to live, at first it can seem a bit, whoa, what's, what's going on here? A bit of head rush like Josiah did then. But actually, it's the way we've been made to live by God. It's the way our body's designed, and so it's the better way for you. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 7. And I'm actually going to start, just to put it in context, in verse 18 of chapter 6. Remember when the Bible was written, there wasn't chapters and verses. These, these have been added in for us to um, help our memory of us, different parts of it. So it says this in verse 18 of chapter 6. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, just quickly to, to say here, when Paul says, not I, but the Lord, he, what he means is that Jesus himself, when he was on earth, spoke specifically into the situation of divorce and marriage. And then this next bit where he says, I, not the Lord, he said, Jesus didn't specifically speak into marriage to an unchristian partner. So Paul's giving his advice here, 
but it's recorded in God's word, so it's God's word to us. It's not like we can say, oh, I'm not going to listen to this bit then. It's actually God's word to us. It says, to the rest I say, uh, rest I, say I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul, after speaking about sexual immorality, decides that now is the right time to address the issues to which they wrote to him about. One of them being about uh, sex and uh, sexuality, the other being a little later about those who are betrothed, those who are engaged in verse 25. Next area is in 8 chapter 1 where they ask some questions about food offered to idols. Then in uh, chapter 12 verse 1 about spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 16 verse 1 about the offering. He's answering questions that they themselves have asked him. And you know he's doing that because it says now concerning this, now concerning that. he's, he's, He's writing concerning the questions that they had asked him. And what's also helpful to understand is that in a uh, sexually immoral culture like theirs and ours that was rife uh, uh, around that time, there was also another competing view, a sort of ascetic view that had the, that held that if you could rise above your bodily needs, then you were somehow more spiritual than the others, because the body is evil. That was what their wrong thinking uh, was. And actually, part of this came into the early church as well. Possibly, because Paul and Jesus themselves were single men, this led to, um, in the first few centuries of the church, actually for, for longer even, them over-emphasizing the importance and need for celibacy, which Paul actually warns us in this passage will lead to immorality, which sadly history shows it has. A clear warning to us as believers today not to go beyond what is written in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. However, that said, it would be fair to say that the pendulum has swung too far the other way nowadays, and how nowadays we view singleness as almost undesirable, as something, there must be something odd about you. Our culture actually makes fun of people that want to live a single life, because surely your body's made for sex. Well, Paul's already said, no, no, it's not. It's made for the Lord. And Paul is clear, isn't he? He says, it's not a command, but I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has their own gift from God. Jesus says in Matthew 19, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. 
And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. He's speaking metaphorically there, not not physically making yourself a eunuch, but choosing celibacy to serve the kingdom of God. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. God in his wisdom and goodness gives some people the ability and enough self-control over themselves so that they can glorify God in their bodies through undivided service and devotion to the Lord. You see that in chapter 7, verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 2. It's a high calling that Jesus and the Apostle Paul says it should, whilst it's only for a few, it should be honoured by everyone, particularly people in the church. And we have people in this church who model this to us brilliantly. So God may even be speaking to some of you now about this call today. Can I tell you just gently to listen to what God says above what society says is right and wrong. The happiest and most fulfilled life you can have is in submission to God. He is the one that has the best for you. Yes, it will be full of challenges, I can promise you that, but you will also have the joy of serving God in an undivided way that married folks don't. And this life is only temporary. You'll be focusing on living for eternity. So if you feel God is calling to you to that and you're praying about that, please don't just pray about that alone. Please get people around you, let the pastoral team know or some of them know, and we'll, we'll gather around you and pray about that and, and help you with that. For some of you, and in, this, in, in, in Corinth, so some people, they were single through bereavement. Paul goes on to say in verse 8 and 9, doesn't he, about to the, ma- to the unmarried and widows. The word there for unmarried, commentators are uh, virtually uh, unanimously agreed on, is referring to widowers and widows, that they should uh, remain uh, single as he is, unless they, unless they feel it right to marry. But the actual word as well is broader than just widowers, so it can apply to those yet to be married as well. So basically, what Paul is saying is you should seek God if you find yourself in that situation, or even when you find yourself in that situation, um, you seek God and say, God, is it right for me to remain single? Is it right for me to to live a a single life? But if you feel God's calling you to get married, if you feel it's right to marry again, then that's absolutely fine too. Again, if you're struggling with this, these these can be difficult and painful things for people, please let us know and we'll get people to come around you and pray with you and stand with you in this situation. To those who are married, Paul says how we can glorify God in our bodies in verse 1 to 5, one of the ways. And now let's remember, Paul was a single man, devoted completely to God. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. So he's not trying to curry favour with anyone. There's no personal advantage to him in this passage. And 
he's also writing in the context of them asking the question, is it, or making the statement, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And in the context of dealing with sexual immorality in the broader context of 1 Corinthians, and his answer is unequivocal. Basically, outside of marriage, yes, that is true. Outside of one man with one woman for life, yes, no, you shouldn't enter into that. And actually, any sex outside of marriage is wrong and done by those who won't inherit the kingdom of God. Chapter 6, verse 9 to 11, make clear. That's why we need Jesus. If you find yourself in that situation, there's forgiveness in him. But, you know, modern science actually backs up what the Bible promotes as the right way to live. If people listen to their creator and you had one man with one woman for life, then all STIs would disappear within a generation. All sexually transmitted infections would would go within a generation if we lived the way that God intended us to live. For those who are married and want to please God, the God created and designed place for sex is within marriage. Paul is being very practical in this passage here. The Bible is actually a very practical book. Now, it's not the only reason for marriage. Paul's dealing with the whole issue of sexual immorality. If you want to know the purpose within marriage, if you want to know the wonderful love that's supposed to be there within marriage that inspired authors like Jane Austen to write her famous books then you look at Ephesians chapter 5. That gives you the purpose of marriage. That gives you the the, the call to great love and sacrificial love within it. But here, Paul is dealing with the issue of sex and sexual immorality in particular. And for most people, the answer to this lies within marriage. The rightful place for sex, where a husband or wife can show practical love to the other partner, is in marriage. Sex makes the two become one. It's a spiritual act as well as a physical act, which is why it is sacred and reserved for marriage only. Prior says on these verses, he says, the whole approach to equality and mutuality in in the marriage relationship was completely revolutionary in Paul's day, and continues to be so virtually in every modern culture today. You probably didn't even realize it as I was reading the passage, how absolutely equal Paul makes men and women in this passage. It would have been absolutely shocking in Paul's day, you need to understand. In a day of polygamy, where that was perfectly acceptable, Paul makes it clear that a man should have his wife, one wife, and a wife should have her husband, one husband. In a day when under Roman law, the woman had no rights, the wife had no rights, she was her husband's property. He could even kill her if he wanted to. Paul makes clear here that all the rights the husband has, the wife has over her husband too. The fact that everything he addresses the man about, he also addresses the woman about, and sometimes addresses the woman before he addresses the man, shows that in Christ we are equal, as it says in Galatians 3, verse 28. You know, in the West, because of our Christian heritage that we have here, we take this for granted. 
But actually, it's not true for the majority world, even today. They, they would still not hold to equality. They may do in speech, but not in practice. But without equal status, with our equal rights that we have as men and women, in marriage, we should willingly give ourselves to our spouse. And the whole emphasis here, just to be clear, is on willingly giving, not trying to manipulate, or not enforcing either. Actually, if force is ever used in this uh, situation, particularly in this most intimate context, then, as I said last time, other biblical principles come into play and the state will need to be involved and we will help you as a church with what we can as well. But the emphasis in the passage is on voluntarily meeting the desire of your spouse as often as is desired by them, with the clear implication in the passage that actually whoever desires the most is where the bar is set. No sex outside of marriage, all the sex within marriage is a slogan. You know, many people on their, on their fridge have things like uh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and stuff like that. Maybe you should think if you're married about having 1 Corinthians Chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, over your bed as a, as a slogan for your bedroom. You see, it glorifies God when you, as married couples, live in a sexually immoral world in a sexually pure way. It glorifies God as he's the one that made sex. It's not dirty. Heaven doesn't, you know, close its eyes and think, oh my goodness, what's going on there? It's not something that's inappropriate to talk about within the context of marriage, which is why we're happy to do it here on a Sunday morning, even though there's children present. They need to, to hear that. The Bible says don't deprive one another, except perhaps for, uh, by agreement for a limited Short, in other words, limited time. Now, it's not saying that you shouldn't be considerate. It's not saying that you shouldn't be romantic. Of course you should. But the Bible is being very practical here. Your spouse, if you're married, your spouse is being restrained by keeping themselves to you and keeping their thoughts on you. Therefore, help your spouse by giving yourself to them. Now, this is obviously a sensitive area, and we can't cover everything in, in one preach. And if you're, there's issues there and you're struggling over things, please come and let the pastoral team know, and we will we'll stand with you and help you in this situation. But moving on, Paul gives clear instructions to those who are married to a non-Christian partner. How can you glorify God in this situation Basically, Paul says, don't divorce them, but if they want to divorce you because, you, um, because you're now different and you're living for Christ, then don't give up on Jesus, stay with him and let them go. It's basically the gist of what Paul is saying there. But a worry would have been for some people that, well, if they choose to stay in that relationship, their partner would be going to the to the uh, pagan temple, they'd probably have idols in their house, may even do sacrifices in their house, all that sort of thing would be going on. Will it make them unholy? Will it make them unclean? 
before God. And Paul is very clear here. No, basically, is the answer. John Calvin says on this, he says, the godliness of the one does more to sanctify the marriage than the ungodliness of the other to make it unclean. Gordon Fee, sword's fallen down, Gordon Fee on these verses, verses 14 to 16, says that as a believer is holy, the unbelieving spouse is also holy. That is set apart in a special way, similar to how Paul describes Israel in Romans 11, verse 16, that hopefully it will lead to their salvation. Paul uses the word save here in a way that doesn't mean that they are fully saved already, but it means winning them to the gospel. Likewise, children are in a similar privileged position as being holy under their parents' faith until the age where they need to make their parents' faith their own. And to demonstrate that, many of you kids will be here this morning because of your parents' faith and wanting to meet with God. Therefore, Anna, if you want to hand that out to anyone under the age of 18, they can, uh, they can have a sweet to eat in a COVID-safe, secure way at uh, an appropriate time that your parents allow you to. And maybe, because there's several sweets in those packages, packets, give one to your parents as well to say thank you for bringing them here. Anyway, to my final point before I finish. Paul goes on to say this in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And you see how clever Ello's video was now, don't you? Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. There's not time to go in to, to how provocative that statement is, how shocking that statement was in Paul's day. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has called, called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was a free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Now, this may seem like an abrupt change to, uh, to you, that going from uh, singleness and marriage to circumcision and slavery. But in Paul's thinking, he is reminding the Corinthians and us about our, uh, the ways that we can equally live out our calling for God. And he's just completing the circle, if you like, of his thinking. In Galatians 3, verse 28 and 29, we see a similar thing addressed there, but in a much shorter way. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Having made it clear, you see, that in Christ, male and female are equal. Having made it clear that in Christ, whether you're married or single, you have your own way of glorifying God in uh, in an equally glorifying way. Paul completes his circle here by saying it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile, whether you come from a Christian heritage or, or you know, a, a heritage of being part under God's covenant or not, you can equally glorify God. What matters is keeping the commandment of God to believe in Jesus and live for Jesus. He then goes, that's verse 18 and 19, he then goes on to say you can equally glorify God in your bodies, whether you're a slave or free. Again, so shocking in Paul's day. Just as he gave equality to men and women, he gives equality to the slave and the freedman or even the slave owner. He places them on an equal footing before God in verses 21 and 23. In fact, It was the seeds of equality that were sown in the gospel that led to the abolition of the slave trade. Praise God for that. And he does give that hint here as well, doesn't he, where he says, well, if you can get free, make sure you get free because we're not called to be slaves of men. We belong to God. I'm going to invite the band back up just as I bring this to a close now. So, my friends, regardless of your family history, whether you have a Christian heritage or not, whether you have a high-paying job or not, whether you're single or whether you're married, do all you can to glorify God in your body and help those around you do the same. Live your life trying to please the one who gave his life to buy you to God at a price, the price of his own life shed for you on the cross. So let's give our all to glorifying the Lord Jesus together. Amen? Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand. Just going to pray. If you're here today or if you've been watching this and you don't know Jesus and you want to get right, with God, and you think, yeah, I, I know I need him, then just pray this prayer in your heart along with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me enough to send Jesus to die for me on the cross for all the things that I've done wrong. Please forgive me of all those things. You may just even want to name some of those things before God that have come to mind as I've been speaking. Father, thank you that in Jesus I can be forgiven. Help me to live the rest of my life for you by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For the rest of us, let's do all we can to glorify God in our own bodies and to help others glorify and magnify the Lord together. Amen. Thank you. Now.